Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the program. Uh, today, we're excited to, to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to present a public talk uh, that was given here at the University of Hawaii at Manoa by Dr. Keita Takayama. Um, the title of his talk was Interrupting Global Economy of Academic Knowledge. Um, and we thought that this was quite interesting and wanted to include it on the program. Um, in this talk, he discusses his experiences as an editor of two academic journals, the Asia Pacific Journal of Teacher Education and Discourse Studies in the Cultural Politics of Education. And his discussion is really a kind of reflexive uh, discussion regarding the ethics of peer review, the, the ethics of um, editorial work uh, with academic journals in relation to the desire that he and his colleagues have had and, and their intentions uh, to include more scholarship from researchers outside of the English-speaking academic world. Um, and he presents um, a series of what he calls uncomfortable moments. These are sort of ref uh, moments where he, he's thinking at different levels of reflexivity about, I would say, I guess you could say the barriers um, that uh, are encountered by uh, researchers and scholars outside of the English-speaking academic world when they submit their work uh, to one of these transnational uh, research journals. Um, and he also provides some um, ways of thinking uh, about reorganization of editorial practices that might um, open, open up uh, the space a bit more. Um, to include um, more work by, by folks outside of the sort of dominant Anglophone um, world um, that, that's, that's hegemonic in academia and in academic knowledge production. So we hope you enjoy this um, and find it interesting. We, are, we have a couple more episodes uh, already completed, and we're looking forward to releasing those in the, in the coming weeks. So um, thank you for, for tuning in, and um, we'll look forward to creating more content. Um, so, uh, yep, take care. So, Interrupting Global Economy Academic Knowledge, course editorship for two international education journals and three uncomfortable moments. I guess I'm sharing some uncomfortable experiences that I have had as an editor, and I don't have any answer to, to the dilemma that I'm, that I'm faced at the moment. But this is an invitation for you to think through those issues with me. So the two journals, uh, Teacher Asia Pacific Journal of Teacher Education. Hereafter, I'm calling. I'm going to call it a APJTE. I'm editing with the Gert Biesta and Margaret Kettle and Stephen Hymans. Gert Biesta, as you know, based in Scotland. Uh, Margaret Kettle and Stephen Hymans are Australian scholars based in Brisbane. And this course, I'm editing it with uh, Radhika Grohr, Sam Seller, and David Butoski. Uh, the first two were based in Australia, and David, as you know, is based in Indiana, United States. So I've been editing these two journals for the last nearly three years. Uh, before getting into the kind of discomfortable, uncomfortable moments that I have experienced, I think it's important for us to understand the sort of broader context of the journal publishing today 
And we're going to start with the demand side pressures. What's creating this pressure for us to publish in international journals? Some of the stuff I'm sure you've already know familiar very well. So we know this world university ranking stuff. It's powerfully operating around the world, creating all sorts of pressures for us to publish in high impact journals, social science citation index and so forth, right? Uh, in many countries, the universities uh, are giving all sorts of financial incentives for, for us to publish in those internationally recognized journals. But particularly English language journals are highly rated, highly, highly ranked in any of those uh, rankings of journals, as you know. And then there's a thing called Q1, right? Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4. Q1 stands for the top 20, 25% of the journals in the field in terms of the uh, citation counts. So we are encouraged, not in Kyoto University, by the way, there's no incentives, no encouragement whatsoever here. But I know other places in Korea, China, Hong Kong, other places, uh, researchers are encouraged to really pressure uh, to uh, send their manuscript to Q1 journals. That is the top 25% of the journals in the area. And we're seeing increasing, drastic increase in manuscript submissions from uh, non-English speaking. Hereafter, I'm going to call it uh, world language speaking. That's WLS, world language speaking, basically meaning non-English speaking, world language speaking countries. So on the side, on the on the right side of the slide, you see uh, some information about the two journals that I'm editing. The top one is the APJTE. As you can see um, right here, it's five percent acceptance rate. That's extremely low. Five articles in one hundred. That's really difficult, right? So this must be really good, highly competitive journal, you would think. And this course, on the other hand, has a 25% of the acceptance rate. That's still difficult, you know, one in four. So you see the Q1, those are both journals has a Q1 status. And that's a big thing in Australia in particular. I don't know, I'm not sure how big it is in America. So it also talks about uh, speed and acceptance, how many days it's going to take from the initial submission to the first decisions and so forth. So this actually gives a lot of pressure on us because we are, if we're not acting on a manuscript quickly, the publisher will email, send an email to us and say, what's going on? Now, so we're gonna, we have to look at now, we look sort of a demand side or we wanna look at the supply side of the pressure as well. Um, so from the early nineties, increasing number of journals, which used to be a national journals, became international. But what was ha happening behind that in the 90s is that a lot of Australian and UK universities were experiencing significant funding cuts as a result of the neoliberal higher education reform at the time. So editors of the journals were really suffering because of the intensification of academic work, then they have very little time to devote to managing uh, journals. 
So May et al, who wrote the history of the uh, Australian Teacher Education Association and the journal that I'm editing, they said that the uh, editors at the time were experiencing volunteer burnout. They are really exhausted. And the journal was also experiencing a declining membership and sub subscription and so forth. So the journal as well as associations were in a financial crisis at the time. Then multinational offshore uh, publishing companies approach those journal editors saying, well, we can offer you comprehensive editorial and admin support, as well as financial incentives if you meet aside certain uh, criteria, um, subscription goals. So many uh, journals in Australia and the UK joined the jumper wagon, basically, it would join the wagon, basically to sign a contract with all these multinational offshore publishers. But the publishers are not so, you know, they, they have certain agenda to pursue. So they want editors to really internationalize the journal. Asia Pacific Journal of Education was formerly known as South Pacific Journal of Teacher Education up until 1996. So to Thailand and Francis, the journal was not international enough. What are you doing? You've got this north, in a, you've got the Asia north of you guys. That's a huge market for you. How come you're not getting into the market to make more profit? So the publisher really encouraged the editors to, first of all, change the name. What the hell is the South Pacific Journal of Teaching Education? That's not international enough, right? So the journal changed the name in 1996 from South Pacific Journal of Teaching Education to Asia Pacific Journal of Teaching Education. And a very similar thing happened to many other Australian journals. For example, um, Melbourne, Melbourne Studies in Education, that's based in the Melbourne University, it became Critical Studies in Education in 2007 and so forth, right? And this internationalization of academic journal was also facilitated by the increasing adoption of e-publication, which facilitated, of course, the transnational uh, distribution of research and knowledge. So these are the kind of sort of broader picture that we need to understand in order to really make sense of what does it actually mean to publish in international journals. Continuing on with the theme of the broader context of journal editing, journal publishing. So we know that there are now five majors in academic journal publishing. Uh, they occupy roughly 50% of the market at Taylor and Francis. That's the publisher that, the, that we have a contract with for the two journal that I'm talking about, Taylor and Francis or Rutledge. Elsevier, Springer, Sage, and Black and Wiley. So these are the five majors. And we know the problem of rising subscription fees. Universities are struggling to pay the fee to to allow university researchers to access these uh, journals, which is of course vital for our work. But we also know that despite the fact that our work is funded by taxpayers, our work is actually a, um, hidden behind a subscription wall so that the normal ordinary citizens, taxpayers won't be able to access the stuff that we are producing 
unless they are willing to pay enormous amount of money to get access to it. And we also know that if you look around, there are so many journals at the moment, incredible number of journals in education. And according to a Shimago journal and country rank, which does all this metrical work, we've got 1,381 journals in the field of education. No wonder why we were bombarded with requests to review manuscript from, from everywhere. I think I get at least one a week. And there's no way for me to review manuscript when I'm struggling to run these two journals. So the challenges within this uh, broader context that I described, the challenges that the editors are facing at the moment are the followings. Blind review problems. It's nearly impossible to secure just two reviewers for a manuscript. We usually approach up to eight to 10 reviewers, potential reviewers to secure one, if lucky two. And we end up, often end up as the editor, we often end up becoming the reviewer because we cannot find anyone. So that gives us an extra work. And I think there is this reviewer's fatigue. People are tired of being asked to review manuscript after manuscript. And this of course causes this huge delay in the review process. And there are people that I would call predatory authors. Those people who publish many, many articles and yet when you approach them for review, they ignore those requests. We have a list of those people in our journal. We're not too nice to them, by the way. Well, if you get your piece published, that involves a lot of work, a lot of voluntary work of others. And I think you have to, when you can, support the system. So as a result of all these issues, what we end up doing as the editor is that we ended up really making it very strict the initial review process. So that we sort of know if we're going to send manuscript to reviewers, we know those review and manuscripts are reasonably good, more likely to be published in the end. So in other words, those papers that are on the borderline, we're not quite sure whether it's going to be publishable in the end. We are likely at the moment to reject them because of the trouble that it could cause to us also the difficulty of securing the uh, reviewers. So we are, we are sending far less papers for uh, external reviews at the moment. And I think this all comes down to the problem of the limits of academic volunteerism. I'm completely exhausted. And I'm sure that Alex, you're editing one journal, you must be exhausted too. So when I decided to uh, edit these journals, I had certain agenda. I wanted to do something different in, in terms of editing the journals. I wanted, I wanted to create a different kind of space. So the kind of literature that's been informing me in, in, my, in my approach, uh, I'm gonna talk about that for now. So um, this is uh, uh, Lynn uh, based in Simon Fraser University. 
In this, in the piece, the sheet it reviews the Quanxian Chan's uh, Asia as method towards deimperialization, uh, published at Duke University in 2010. Uh, she makes the following point, which is relevant to what I was, what was going to do as an editor. Uh, in fact, to publish in these international research journals, one has to constantly quote and relate to Western theories and justify how one's study can contribute to enriching or conversely critiquing these theories. And either way, we cannot depart from these theories. Our knowledge production seems to be already constrained within the particular structure of knowledge and I cannot break away from it. And also, if you're familiar with the Alatas's work, uh, Hussein Sarid Alatas, based in uh, National Singapore National University, he's been raising this sort of issue for the last two decades. decades. Uh, in one of the pieces, he talks about intellectual division of labor on a global scale. He invites us to ask who actually produces knowledge and who actually produces data which gets processed in the um, theory mills of the global north. So how do we actually disrupt the intellectual division of labor on a global scale? So those are the things that I was really wanted to, you know, put in place as an editor. Continuing on with the critical insight that, I, that was informing my editorial practice, um, this is uh, Kinji Imanishi. He is uh, a foremost um, primatologist in Japan, who is, of course, uh, passed, who passed away a long time ago. Uh, who, he was the founder of the, the primatology, Japanese primatology studies, and became very famous across the country. And the, on, the, on the right, you see a commentary on Diwal, on, on Imanishi's scholarship. Duval says something interesting uh, as to why Imanishi's uh, scholarly contribution has long been unacknowledged in the international scholarship of primatology. And he thinks that it has to do with the way in which research is, research is written in Japan. So he says, for us, that's for um, Western researchers, science is a confrontational process that seeks to decide who is right and who is wrong. It takes a certain mindset to operate in this manner. And Japanese scientists have no lack of assumptions or expectations about the world, but they are reluctant to propose them in a way that invites disagreement. So the point he's making is the way in which you write research is very much culturally informed. So different country has different culture, therefore research writings, styles of argumentation, style of forms of logic are culturally informed. But unless you are culturally sensitive, you might end up not recognizing, not recognizing the considerable scholarly contributions of other scholars. Asymmetry of ignorance is the term that was coined by um, Depsi Chakrabarti in the famous book called uh, Provincializing Europe, published in 2000. But similar concept is also mentioned by a Japanese anthropologist called uh, Takumi Kuwayama, 
in a book that is that no one pays attention to called Native Anthropology, uh, published by uh, Trans-Pacific Press, based in Melbourne, Australia. In this fascinating book, he also addresses the similar problem, what he calls um, global structure of academic knowledge production. And he makes the following argument. People on the mainland can go through their life oblivious of what happens on the remote islands. I guess this is relevant to folks in, on Hawaii, and I'm also living on a little island here too, in a sense. Uh, but the opposite is hardly true. Uh, similarly, scholars in the center can safely ignore their counterparts in the periphery without risking their career, whereas the latter will be labeled ignorant or even backward if they are unfamiliar with the former's research. The asymmetrical relationship shows that the core has the power to dictate the dominant modes of academic discourse. The periphery is forced to accept them, for example, by adopting the central scholars' theories, methods, and writing styles, if it wishes to be recognized internationally. So informed by this sort of literature, I wanted to do something different. So I was going to do, first of all, to increase the proportion of contributions from LLS, world language speaking countries. I was really keen to do that. That is to basically, I'm talking about Asia Pacific Journal of Teacher Education here. That is to reflect the name of the journal, Asia Pacific, in its content. I skimmed through the pages of the journal, and there are hardly any articles written by Asian or Pacific scholars. That was strange. We're not living up to the name. And I wanted to open the journal to different logic forms, modes of thinking, and argumentations and styles of writings. It's easier to say than actually do this, you know. And I wanted to practice the reflexivity on our own positionality, my own positionality, the fact that I'm someone who has been trained in North America and taught in Australia, and now back in Japan, but how much do I know about the different forms of argumentations, different logic forms, styles of writings? It's gonna be a challenge. And I wanted to suspend as much as possible my own judgments on challenging manuscript. Manuscript, manuscript that seems absolutely incomprehensible in the first instance. Instead of, instead of judging them as incomprehensible or backward, therefore not publishable, I wanted to stop and read it carefully to see if I can make sense and find something interesting in those articles. So in a nutshell, I wanted to create epistemological parity among different national regional knowledges through my editorship. And I wanted to reposition journal as a nexus where different educational and research knowledges meet. So I was very ambitious. And 
Assuming the, assuming the editorship of the Asia Pacific Journal of Education, Gert Biest, myself, uh, Margaret Kettle, and Stephen Hymans came up with eight challenges. We thought that we should say something provocative at the beginning so that people will pay attention to us, right? So one of the eight challenges I sort of authored it. It says, we wanted to, we want manuscript, manuscripts that employ or develop theoretical and methodological resources that are relevant to teacher education that draw from the experiences of education practice, research, informed by an engagement with the politics of global south, North designation. And to be specific, we would hope that an increasing number of submissions will engage explicitly with both the transnational and intranational politics of knowledge production and demonstrate strong reflexivity about what one's research does in relation to such broader politics of knowledge. And this should encourage us to rethink what questions we ask, what theories we draw upon, and whose knowledge our research privileges and marginalizes. So you can see how the literature that I introduced just before this informed the challenge eight statement, challenge eight. So let's move on to my uncomfortable three, three uncomfortable moments. Now, here's a data that I was able to obtain from uh, Tyler and Francis, but it's a confidential information. So the, when uh, Alex told me that you were recording this uh, talk, I wasn't sure what to do with the data. Uh, but I'm hoping that the publisher won't find me. Yeah, as long as you keep quiet, they're not going to find me doing this, right? So please, please, my why my professional life is on the line at the moment. But I did my best to generalize the um, data so that you can identify which country. That's as best as I could do. Okay, don't try to guess too much, right? So. Country C-A-T-T-I-I-I-S-U-I-M. So these are the top 10 countries in terms of the number of submissions in 2022. I'm talking about Asia Pacific Journal of Teacher Education here. I am dropping discourse for now. So the it says submission, number of submission, number of rejection, and number of acceptance, and acceptance rate. It's an interesting data, isn't it? It actually quite shocking. It was quite shocking to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing that so you sort of knew as the editor, but you weren't 100% sure until you see the data and you see a clear disparity. So the country C, acceptance rate is 1.89. That is so difficult, right? Out of 53 articles submitted to us, we only accepted one. Whereas second country, that's, oh, by the way, WLS, you know what that stands for? ES, English speaking, okay, ES. So second country, A, has submitted 32 and then 13 were accepted. So interesting for uh, folks in this particular country, APJTE is not a hard, hard article, a hard journals to get manuscript in. Acceptance rate is 40%. That's easy, right? And the country TTT, you see the list. 
So that's in 2022 on the left. And you see a similar trend on the right. That's the data for 2021. You see the English speaking countries are very much privileged in terms of getting their manuscript published in a journal. So this data is, is generic enough so that I don't think publisher have any problem with it. In fact, I'm actually publishing this in, in the journal as, the, as an extended editorial, which coming up fairly soon. And I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that they're not gonna see the content of the editorial uh, before it gets published. Now, this is a regional distribution, origins of submitted manuscript on the left. And on the right, you see accepted papers. Of course, these regional categories are very problematic, right? Because when we say Asia, what countries are included in Asia? In fact, this Asia includes Israel, Vietnam, you know, Japan, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, all those countries. So it's a broad category. Oceania includes Australia, New Zealand, and many small island nations. Europe includes North, South, East, West Europe, including Russia. So it's very broad. But you see a pattern here. In terms of submitted manuscript, Asia is overrepresented, right? Nearly, I don't know, maybe 70% of the paper come from Asia. And then roughly 10, uh, 15 comes from Oceania. Slightly less come from Europe. But if you look at accepted papers, suddenly Oceania comes on top and Asia is far less and Europe is just as many as Asia so forth. In North America, uh, take over um, Africa, right? So you see the pattern. So the data that I presented seems to reveal the followings. Journal that I'm editing, privileges, English speaking countries, and some world language speaking countries have zero acceptance, absolutely zero, despite the large number of submission. The low acceptance rate, Asia Pacific Journal of Education, teacher education has a very low acceptance rate. Over the last three years, it hovers around uh, six to 8%, but that's achieved by the disproportionate number of world language speaking manuscripts being rejected. So what does international actually mean here? Asia Pacific Journal of Education is supposed to be an international journal, but it's actually domestic, very domestic. Australia plus some selected, mostly English speaking internationals. So now I need to reflect upon what I do as the editor. Why is this happening? Despite all this good intention that we brought to the editorship, why is this happening? I have to tell you that we are operating under enormous time pressure. For APJTE, we receive about 40 to 50 manuscripts 
per month. And we get the fortnightly budge. So that means that we don't, we cannot afford to spend too much time on each manuscript. We have to quickly skim through the papers and make up a decision, make up a mind. When you are when you when you are pressured and rushed, you end up relying upon this intuitive sense of fit fitness. Whether you intuitively like the paper, whether you intuitively find the paper interesting, and you are unable to suspend your doxa, think taken for granted assumptions, basis of your judgment. So why are the world language speaking papers rejected? What are the reasons for rejections? So I went through the list to see how we, what, what basis, on what basis we rejected those world language papers, speaking papers. We say uninteresting, but uninteresting for whom? You only find certain articles interesting because the article speaks to the kind of literature that you're familiar with. But you know that your understanding of the literature is not a comprehensive on a global scale. So who am I to say that this paper is not interesting? Uninteresting for whom? Another reason that we often come up with is a lack of international relevance. It doesn't appeal to international readership of the journal. Fair enough. But wait a second. International, does the term international actually equals to English speaking? No. So what do we actually mean by international relevance? And whose debate? If we say that this paper doesn't participate in any sort of debate, doesn't make any contribution to the international debate. So whose debate are we talking about? Lack of specificity of place. We often say this study doesn't tell us anything about the place. There's no sense of a history, culture, institution, tradition, right? But the funny thing is that have we ever asked the same question to the Anglo-American authors? Do we actually say to American scholars that look, you're not telling us enough history about your context? We actually never do that. Why? Are we not imposing the extra, what the uh, Morris, Morris says back in 1992, uh, cultural studies scholar in Australia? Are we not imposing the extra labor of translation on WLS authors? And another reason why this disparity is happening in the journal, I think it's because we didn't pay enough attention to how we select reviewers. We did all the initial assessment of the papers, but once that's done, we left the uh, identification of reviewers to the managing editor. And I think a managing editor simply used the uh, Scala One system provided by Rutledge, Thailand Francis, to identify the uh, potential author um, reviewers and approach them, right? So that was our mistake. Another reason why a lot of world language speaking manuscripts were rejected is this. 
many large-scale survey studies were submitted from world language speaking countries. And they are to us very instrumental. And most problematically, those studies treat teachers as a composite of variables. And we are particularly interested in the research that takes teachers or teacher educators as seriously as human beings who individually and collectively seeks to make a difference for their students, their communities and society at large. We actually made an editorial statement not so long ago. And many articles that are submitted from world language speaking countries, in our view, do not treat teachers as human beings. We also found those studies do not give us any sense of smell of the place. In other words, it's almost like if you read those large scale survey studies, you don't even know the fact that the study was conducted in say China or Vietnam at all. There's no sense of place. And we find it deeply problematic. We also suspect that there might be a misconception out there that large scale quantitative research is the global standard. Hence, they might think that it scores high in international academic publishing journals like ours, which is certainly not the case in Asia Pacific Journal of Teacher Education. So what, what we have come to realize here is that our editorial stance actually excluded a large number of world language speaking manuscripts. And this was a very difficult fact for us to fathom. Uncomfortable moment number two. This is the comes from the my experience of editing discourse. There was an, a manuscript which deploys critical discourse analysis in understanding a policy shift in China. Two reviews came back. One was reasonably positive, but the other was scathingly critical. Of the, of the lack of any attention to politics. The reviewer says, there's no explicit critique of communist party. It reads more like a propaganda. And we have to wonder, how can Chinese scholars express criticality? We know all, we know all, this, all about the censorship in China and how Chinese scholars have to be extremely careful in what they write. And I think it's brave enough for them to try to do critical discourse analysis of the Chinese government policy in China. Are we equipped as the editor to read between the lines and appreciate the subtlety in their expression of criticality? So we have to go over the text again and again to really try to understand and appreciate how criticality might be expressed in the piece. In the end, we sought an opinion from a Chinese scholar, singular solely, not a plural. But then we wondered, to what extent can we rely on one individual? We certainly don't have the capacity to find multiple Chinese reviewers. It was a struggle. 
After much deliberation amongst us, we decided to reject the paper on the basis that the paper does not account for the identified shifts in discourse, as it does not fully account for the political economic context. But we did kept wondering, we kept wondering afterwards, was it a right decision? Third uncomfortable moment, this will be the last one, is that when we realize that world language manuscript, one language speaking manuscript that we immediately think interesting, are most likely authored by scholars that are trained in North American institutions, now based in places like Hong Kong, South Korea, and China. I immediately thought about the notion of extraversion that the um, Hotonji cited in the Cornell, Raven Cornell's uh, book, uh, Southern Theory, it talks about. Hotonji talks about extraversion in the context of post-colonial Africa, but I think this applies to the discussion here too. So extraversion means, basically refers to the need of the post-colonial African scholars to draw upon the international discourse of research, how that removes their research from the actualities of the context, rendering, rendering their research of little relevance for the specific challenges of the locality. So are we not promoting uh, extraversion on a global scale? And then I also think about what Kuwayama, I mentioned earlier, cited earlier, what he says, uh, what he calls catch-22 of cross-cultural conformity. So he's making this discussion in the context of the, uh, in the field of anthropology, but this applies to the discussion here too. Compelled to develop and express their ideas according to Anglo-American pattern in order to reach the international community beyond their own, whatever originality they might have possessed tends to be filtered out in the process. Thus, anthropologists outside the core countries are caught in a catch-22 of cross-cultural conformity. So how do we, as the editors of the journal, how do we make sure that we are not encouraging production of meaningless, meaningless research to the local context around the world? That would be my, this would be my conclusion. Well, it doesn't really conclude, it's still wide open. So what are we going to do? What am I going to do as the editor of the journal? Um, I've decided to write all this up, all these uncomfortable moments, uh, the disturbing data, the kind of uh, stance that we have and why we inadvertently excluded many number of manuscripts from world language speaking countries and so forth. The stuff I talked about up to this point, I wrote them all up and decided to publish, to invite uh, potential contributors to the journal as well as the readers to start talking about all these issues. So in the last volume, Asia Pacific Journal of Teacher Education, this is actually a 
uh, 50th anniversary of the journal. Um, then in the last issue of the volume, I wrote an extended editorial titled Taking Asia Pacific Seriously, Some Uncomfortable Questions About Editing APJTE. In that piece, I try to be very explicit about the kind of vision that we have as the editors. You know, the importance of not treating teachers as just a variable, for example. Treat teachers as human beings. Be explicit about our vision and the kind of research we are interested in and the kind of research that we are not interested in. We thought we should be absolutely explicit about what we are trying to solicit. So I made a call for world language speaking manuscript that take teachers seriously as human beings. Also manuscripts that bring to the surface the meaningful differences in educational practice theory and institutions that would enable us to estrange making strange what is taken for granted. So I'm keen to continue more discussion on the discomfort that I have experienced as an editor and giving a presentation today on this topic is part of that effort to create more conversation on, on those issues that I think are quite relevant to many early career researchers like yourself who are going to start publishing your research. Thanks very much for listening.